Good morning, Doxa. My name is David. Uh, if you're new here, I'm one of the guys on staff. It's super fun to be able to worship with all of you and teach the Bible. Uh, open up to Philippians. This is the series we've been kind of walking through. We're in Philippians 2, okay? So basically, if you're new here, what we do at Doxa is we just open up the Bible and we kind of preach through books of the Bible as kind of our general pattern. And we're in this series in Philippians, which is where the Apostle Paul wrote this letter about how to be the church, the small group in Philippi, this church in Philippi. And we're in verse 19. So chapter 2, verse 19. I'm just going to read it and then we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. It says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he served me, served with me in the gospel, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me." Remember Paul, is kind of, he's been writing from prison, right? And so he's kind of writing this letter to them. And he's like, hey, as soon as I know what's going to happen, I'll send Timothy right now. I need him here. And then verse 24, I says, I trust in the Lord that I shortly myself will come also. I've, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and he's been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And I'm more than eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of the Lord, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me." So if you've been following along with us, like you've been here for the last, you know, last month, you've been kind of jumping into this, this letter. This is like we're in an interesting section of the letter. Um, Paul has just kind of the last few weeks written like some of the kind of the most amazing and profound like sections in the whole New Testament, right? I mean, like it's sort of amazing high moments uh, in the Bible are in the beginning of Philippians. And then he just sort of turns this corner and starts to have this like very normal conversation, right? Like he gets into just some logistics He's like, hey, I'm going to eventually send Timothy, and, and, but here's how that's going to work. And he gives an update on what happened to their friend, Epaphroditus. It's this letter between friends. And it's, it's interesting, right? Because he just a few, he's like giving this grand vision, and then like, this is who Jesus is. Like, he, he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, and he's been, I've been, his name is now the name above every name, and every knee um, will bow before Jesus. It's like grand vision. And then it kind of gets a little bit smaller, and he's like, now here's what it means for you, right? This is last week. Like, hey, in the normal things of life, like, stop complaining so much, right? And you're like, okay, it gets a little bit smaller. And then it just gets like super small to like, hey, here's some logistics. Like, here's your friend. He was sick. And so it's like this grand vision of who Jesus is. He's saying, I want you to understand that like, even in the Bible, that has an impact on just like the normal everyday things of life. And I feel like it's sort of a reminder for me at least that the Bible is not like all these other religious books. I don't know if you've kind of dabbled in kind of other like sacred texts before, but um, the Bible is different. It's not this kind of like mythical kind of abstract account of things, but it's the words of God given to real people in real places going through real things. And most other religious books, right, God is like something or it's someone that you have to kind of like leave your present experience of the world, like transcend this different way of life to really 
experience. You kind of have to like almost like leave like with your mind or your body, transcend your normal circumstances, become something else, go somewhere else, think a different way in order to connect with God. But the story of the Bible is actually the story of a God who interacts with his people in their world. Like it's strangely normal compared to other religious books because it's the God who comes down and he meets with his people on Mount Sinai, right? The, the place where his people were. And he travels with them in a tabernacle because people are going somewhere and so God goes with them. It's actually the story of a God who became a human being and who joins with his people into the normal Monday things of life. I remember um, going to Israel when I was a little bit younger. So I was newly married and we were taking this trip from another church I worked at to Israel. And I kind of like somehow got into this trip. It was like fairly expensive, but I was like doing video and photography. And so they were like, hey, if you come and take pictures, we'll give you like half price on this trip. And I was like, I was going to do that anyway. So yes, I'll take the discount, right? And so I go on this trip and I was really excited because I was with a ton of my friends who were going on this thing. It was exciting. But I was also like, I have read, so I've read the Bible for like, you know, at this point, five, five years, pretty seriously. And I have all this kind of imagery in my head of what this place is going to be like. And I'm like, this is awesome. And like the very first day, we take these like overnight buses, like after we land in, um, I don't know where we landed, but we take these overnight buses to the Sea of Galilee. And so we're like staying in this hotel and everyone's like, oh, we're going to wake up and we're going to see the Sea of Galilee, like where Jesus walked on water. This is going to be incredible. Like we have so much like anticipation built up for this moment. And um, I'm going to show you a picture of me at the Sea of Galilee. So that's me um, and that's a lake. All right? Like... That's a lake, and you're like, it kind of looks like Mendota. Yep. Like, I mean, here's the thing. It was like kind of cool. It was like misty in the morning. You can kind of see, you can kind of see over there some hills over there. Like, you know, this is like one of the areas where Jesus might have done storming on the mountain. But that is like an old rusted boat dock, right? We have those. Very normal. I remember like waking up and just feeling that, walking around, and like the place wasn't even cleaned up. It was kind of dirty. Like there weren't nice beaches. You're just like. I'm from Iowa, and I was like, this feels like Iowa. Like, I don't know why I just got, like, on a plane and flew all the way over here to have this, like, mystical, powerful experience with, like, this amazing place in the world. And then I got there, and I was like, this is so normal. And I, we have way better lakes in Wisconsin than the Sea of Galilee. And I remember, like, laughing about that, because I was just like, I don't know why, but for some reason, when I thought Sea of Galilee, I thought, like, small ocean. Like, sea, I thought, like you know, pond, lake, sea. So I thought like Great Lake. It's not. You can see it to the other side very easily. It's not a sea. It's a lake. I don't know why we call it the Sea of Galilee. I, was, I seriously was like so dumbfounded when I like was standing there. I was like, are we at the right place? And I'll be honest, it kind of bummed me out, okay? At first it bummed me out. Um, but I remember thinking as I was there and it wasn't just the Sea of Galilee, it was like Jerusalem, it was Bethlehem, it was all these places that like amazing things happened. And I remember just walking into these villages and being like, these places are so normal. Um, and I remember thinking, like, man, if God can do something world changing in a place like this, maybe He can do it where I live. Like, if the Spirit of God can take something as normal and mundane as this, like, small lake, and God can walk on water and do a miracle here, maybe he can do a miracle, like, where I live in my life. Because it honestly looks and feels really similar to this place. 
It was actually powerful in how not powerful it was. Just a really, really normal place. And this is what has actually stuck out to me most about this passage. It just feels normal to me. Like, I think we have this idea that the Bible's written like from spiritual superstars to spiritual superstars, right? And we have this idea sometimes that we're like these people that when we come to church, we pick up the Bible, we're like people like on the outside of a party, like looking through the window, right? It's like the whole football team is in there. They're having this awesome time. There's like cheerleaders and good food and like, you know, Rob's in there and I'm on the, you're, we're on the outside like looking in and we're like, okay, like how do we get in there? How do we become part of this? We're on the outside. And I think it's pretty normal for us to feel that way, right? There are saints and then there's the rest of us. And there's like people that are like written about in these like amazing stories and they're like these incredible people. And the rest of us just sort of muddle through life. But what I love about this passage of Philippians is that I actually don't feel that way when I read it. Like I know there's some pretty awe-inspiring moments in this letter, but at the same time, it's like a letter between friends. Timothy, Epaphroditus, this church, their friend Paul, who's kind of going through a hard situation, and they're friends, and they love Jesus, and they love each other. And yes, they made this commitment to one another. They wanted to live their lives for something that mattered, but also feels really tangible and normal. And I've kind of always been like curious or interested, like why God wrote the Bible this way, like why he would chose to reveal the truth about himself through the lives and pens of normal people experiencing normal human issues. You know, and some people have a problem with this, right? They say like, how is it possible? Because this is clearly like, Paul wrote this with his own hand, right? Like he's, it's his stories, right? How is it possible that God could reveal truth about himself? How could it be inspired? How could it be perfect? How could it be the word of God to his church, but be like this? And honestly, there's a really long answer to that. If you want, we can like talk more about how this is like actually God's word, how it's actually inspired. But the simple answer is that this is just how God has designed all of salvation. He isn't the God who stands at a distance in his like perfect, abstract, unknowable holiness. That's not who God is. But he's the God who breaks into our story. And he's the God who breaks into our timeline. And he actually literally breaks into our physical world literally as one of us. Like we're at church today. We're Christians. We worship Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And you know, one of the things that Jesus was doing when he became a human being with us is he was like validating what we feel like is normal. And it's like he was like, because he spent like 30 years of his life not doing these like walking on water, doing these crazy miracles. He was like a carpenter living a normal life, like walking through the everyday things of life. And he's like with his life, with his existence as a human being, it's God himself is like validating the things that feel normal. It's like he's pronouncing sacred the things that we might feel are like simple and mundane. There's this uh, interesting show, I don't know if you've watched it, called The Chosen. It's like this new kind of Christian show or whatever, but it's about the life of Jesus. And there's this one episode in the first series, there's a whole episode of basically just Jesus at his camp doing chores. That was like the whole episode. And I remember just being like, oh my goodness. Like he's just washing dishes and like, clean, like sweeping up camp. And I'm like, I had like not really considered Jesus as actually a human being before, <laughs> you know? I remember watching this and being like, oh my gosh, like the dude did chores. He did normal stuff. Like he wasn't 
He was living this normal life. And so one of the things I want to do is I just want to help us notice in this passage how normal faithfulness through the ordinary things of life are actually what move the kingdom of God forward. Like just normal faithfulness in the everyday things of life, like these are actually the things that move the kingdom of God forward and actually change the world. And it's a little bit of a different sermon. Normally kind of, I mean, I, I normally things feel like a little more put together for me, but I just have like six things I noticed of like, this is so normal. How hilarious is it that God used that situation, all right? So read verse 19 with me. It says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth and how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. Okay? The very first thing that I was thinking about when I read this passage is the normal faithfulness of parenting. All right? Because who is Timothy? Where did this guy come from? Well, Paul actually tells us in another letter, 2 Timothy 1.5, says this, He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, writing to Timothy, this young pastor. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Now, we know from other places in the Bible that Timothy had like this, he had a believing mother, but a Greek father. And so we don't know if that, I guess, dad was like absent in his life, but he certainly wasn't like his spiritual role model. Like here, it says that Paul kind of became that person. But you have this woman named Lois, who chooses to follow God with her life. And she eventually has a daughter. Pretty normal thing for a lot of women to do. Has a kid. She loves, raises, and teaches this small girl about the things of God. And eventually Eunice would have a son named Timothy, and she would raise him and teach him to follow Jesus. And eventually Paul would join with Timothy And Timothy would become one of the most important people in all of his ministry to the church. He'll literally say, I have no one like him. And I was just thinking about this. I was like, how awesome is that? It's like the things that you are doing in your family, the things that you're doing in your home, the things that no one else sees, this like quiet faithfulness of just being a parent, being a mom, that is exactly the normal faithfulness that changes the world. Changing diapers, making meals, reading books with your kids, right? Playing with your kids on the floor, crying with your kid when they feel abandoned by their friends at school. It's like in the middle of all of this, like praying for them that someday they'd come to know Jesus or trying to teach them the ways of God as best you can through the kind of normal situations of life. That matters. Like that matters so much. And Jesus is like in those circumstances with you. And there's actually a way to faithfully live out your identity in Christ in those moments, no matter how small or simple or mundane they might feel. Second thing I noticed, the normal faithfulness through friendship. He says this, this is really funny. He says, I'll send Timothy, Uh, I'll do that. You really need him, but I need him here until I know what's gonna happen with me, right? And he says, I have no one like him. Like we're literally linked arm in arm, like our hearts bleed for the same things. We share the same heart for you. He says, I'm sending Epaphroditus, right? This brother, this partner, this warrior. And he says, gosh, I really thought this dude was gonna die. Like, and I'm telling you, like I praise God that he had mercy on him and he had mercy on me because I would have had sorrow upon sorrow. These people are just friends. They're friends. 
They love each other a ton. You have this intergenerational discipleship between Paul and Timothy, but eventually it gets to like this point where like they are just really good friends and Paul's like, if I'm gonna die, I need Timothy by my side. And you have this church that loves Paul enough to send their friend Epaphroditus across Europe to try to find him in prison, give him money and resources. And, you know, he gets sick and, and they love Epaphroditus. So, like, they get worried. And then, you know, Epaphroditus gets worried. He's like, oh, my gosh, they think I'm sick. And it takes a long time to, like, send letters back and forth, right? So they're like, is he going to be okay? These people are just great friends. They genuinely love one another. But the thing that kind of orients and unites their friendship is that they've chosen to kind of base their friendship around the mission God. That's what unites them. That's what kind of defines their life together. Who, who are your friends? And what unites you to these people? One of the things I've learned, I'm pretty young, I'm 32, but true deep friendship is hard. Friendship actually takes time. It takes intentionality. And usually, just because of the busyness of our lives, most of us tend to have a ton of very shallow friendships with a lot of different people and Paul did something different. He seemed to prioritize a few relationships that he gave his full self to, knowing that they were going to do the same thing. And I think that if you look through human history, and you look even in the history of the church, what we see is that there is very little more powerful in the world than it's a simply a group of friends who choose to make God the center of their ambitions. Like there's very little in the world that's more powerful than just some friends who say, hey, we are going to put Jesus in the center of our relationship. We want to live for his ambitions, and we are going to be in each other's corner no matter what. One of the things in your life that matters, that can change the world, is simply how you be friends with people. It's like a really normal part of life, but it's not small. It's these things that move the kingdom of God forward. Right, and it's so cool. They have this like super deep relationship with one another, but it wasn't like exclusive, right? It wasn't clicky, like, ah, oh, man, like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, they have this like in thing and no one else is really in that. It's like, no, they were like these outward facing, like they were friends together so they could turn outward and like lift everyone else up around them. Third thing I noticed, normal faithfulness through weakness. Look at verse 23. Paul says, I hope therefore to send him, Timothy, as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord, I myself will come also. He, this is awesome. He's like, Timothy is amazing. He is really going to help you guys. Like, you need some help. He's going to help you. Honestly, though, I need him here, right? He's like, for a little while longer, I just, I need a friend. I'm in a really hard spot. Actually, in 2 Timothy, this other letter from Paul, he writes to Timothy, he says, hey man, I need you to come here. I need you to bring Mark with you also. I need you guys and these are like really important figures, like the gospel spreading. These are like high capacity leaders. And Paul is like, listen, I know we're all about the kingdom of God moving forward, but I actually feel really weak right now and I need friends, I need help. And so if you could actually get off the front lines of ministry for a minute and just come back and pour into me, that would be really, really valuable. And I'm actually asking you to do it. Listen, the gospel doesn't move forward by us pretending to be strong and put together high capacity leaders that life is always going great, but actually moves forward by normal people who at many times in their lives are experiencing their own limitations and their dependency on other people. And what do they, what do, they do in these situations? They just ask for help. They ask for help. He's like, I'm in prison and I'm fighting to rejoice and trust in the Lord 
but I could really use a pastor, and I could really use a friend. I'm pretty dang sad right now. I need to keep Timothy here at least until I figure out what's going to happen to me next. The fourth thing, normal faithfulness through sorrow and anxiety. Uh, Did you find it interesting that uh, the passage before, Paul says to do all things without grumbling and complaining, instead rejoice. And then actually later in Philippians, in chapter 4, he is going to say this. He's going to say, do not be anxious about anything. Like these are real visions of the Christian life. But I want you to look at verse 27. He says, indeed he was ill. He's talking about Epaphroditus, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Paul is still someone who is in process himself, right? Like he's writing to us, and he's like, man, there's actually a possible way that you can rejoice always. This is what I want my life to be like. But he's also like, man, I was pretty anxious in this whole situation that was happening here, right? He's like, things are really sad to me, sometimes incredibly so. If that dude died, I would have been in a really dark place. And you say, wait, Paul, didn't you just say that if your life was poured out like a drink offering, that you would rejoice in that moment? He's like, yeah, I would. I would try. That's the vision I have in Christ. But that doesn't mean that life isn't often really sad and hard at the same time. Like, we're people who are, like, sorrowful and yet rejoicing. It's like, I experience sorrow. There's actually other places in the Bible where Paul says that, like, his life was so hard and he was experiencing it so emotionally that he despaired of life itself. Do you ever feel that way? Paul did. He's like, I experience anxiety. And sometimes, even though I know God is in total control, I can't seem to not worry about situations or the people I love. And I don't know about you, but I find it comforting that it isn't people who are complete and who are already perfect that God uses, but he uses the normal faithfulness of people who are still in process. I love that because that's me. (laughs) That's my current story. And what's awesome about this is it's not a story of how God uses people who are already totally sanctified and made perfect. He uses people like Paul who are still in process. And if that's true, it means he can probably use me who's still in process as well. Not the future version of me, but God actually wants to use me today. Despite the things that are not fixed in me, despite my anxieties, despite my fears, he's like, I want to use you, not despite those things, but even like in those things. Verse 5. Or not, not verse five, but number five. <laughs> Normal faithfulness through sickness, right? This is really interesting. Epaphroditus, this dude is given a bunch of resources, right? We're kind of like getting, you're kind of getting the backstories you read this, but if you look at the whole letter of Philippians, this dude is given a bunch of resources and is tasked by the church, hey, go find our friend Paul. He needs help. He's our friend. Take care of him. And that dude, either on the journey or like when he gets there, isn't wearing his mask, gets COVID-19, gets super sick, almost dies, all right? Like that, he just literally is like almost dead. He's super, super sick. And what's interesting is he's supposed to take care of Paul and then he doesn't, right? <laughs> like Paul ends up taking care of him. It's just like not according to plan at all. Do any of you feel that way about like the last year of your lives? You're like, I was trying to do something for the Lord and then I got really, really sick and almost died. 
That's a pretty normal story we experience, right? And we could look at that and be like, gosh, like if this wouldn't have happened or if this was not our situation, like we could really see God doing some amazing things. But I feel like one of the things we just need to see is like sickness and brokenness and things not going according to plan. Simple faithfulness to God in the midst of those things, that's how the world changes. Number six, normal faithfulness through a broken past. This guy Paul's talking about, his name is Epaphroditus. Um, who wants to get up here and try to spell that on a whiteboard? <laughs> All right. Epaphroditus. And actually, if you write that into uh, Microsoft Word, it actually autocorrects to Aphrodite. And it's actually a great autocorrect because the name literally means someone who belongs to Aphrodite, who's this pagan goddess of sex. And so you just like, as Paul's like saying this, he's like, hey, I'm going to send Epaphroditus back and you know this guy. It's like what is evident to every single person who's part of this church is you know this guy didn't come from the right parents. Like he didn't come from the right back story. His parents were actually so far from the real God that they named him after a false one. And everywhere this guy goes, he carries this backstory with him. I'm named after a false God. And it used to be my way of life, and it defined me so much that it's my name. And we might ask, well, dude, why didn't you just change your name, man? Like, your name is like, I belong to this pagan God. Why wouldn't you change your name? And I think the reason is because he didn't need to. Like, he didn't need to actually go back and, like, change his past. He actually, as he was, was a perfect candidate to be used in the kingdom of God. I had this friend in college who's a great dude love Jesus, and we would go out and, like, share the gospel together, and he had this, like, this huge sleeve, and, like, Rob has the Last Supper on his sleeve. This dude had this, like, huge, like, coexist bumper sticker, like, all the way down his arm, right? And it's, like, you can think whatever you want about that bumper sticker, but it's, like, you know, it's, like, hey, we should live at peace together, and also, uh, Jesus is not the only way. Every religion is basically the same, right? And so, he, like, had this kind of pasted all down his arm as this Christian, and I'm, like, that's so interesting. He's, like, yeah, I used to believe that, I don't anymore, but it's literally just this reminder of who I used to be and who I'm not anymore. And I don't actually need to cover it up because this is part of my story. And Jesus uses people like me in his kingdom. And maybe you're in the room and you might feel this way. You might feel like your history or your family background or just like literally your story. You might think that because of, of who you are that God couldn't or wouldn't want to use someone like you. And maybe Epaphroditus thought that when he first heard about Christianity. I don't know. Like he grew up in kind of this Greek, this, this secular paganism. And I think it's possible that Epaphroditus heard the story of Jesus and how Jesus actually came from a broken family. Right? Like questioning of like this virgin birth, like how did this happen? There's like some maybe nefarious thing going on here. Maybe like he heard about his lineage, how he had like a prostitute, like a rape, like all these horrific, horrible things that happened in his lineage that Jesus Christ was like, that's the family I choose. I want to come into the world with a history of familial brokenness and I want to redeem that story. And I think maybe Epaphroditus was just like, dude, if Jesus can have a backstory like that and change the world. Maybe Jesus can use someone like me who also has a broken backstory to change the world. And so Epaphroditus literally means belonging to Aphrodite, but Paul's like, yeah, that's his name, but that's not who he is. He's my brother. 
he is this fellow worker. He's this soldier for Christ. He's this messenger, and he's actually a minister to my need. He's my friend, and he's awesome. And he says, you should honor men such as these. Like, you should honor this guy who has this backstory because of who he's actually faithfully being today in Christ. He says, honor men such as these, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. And now, that's like a powerful statement, right? <laughs> like, honor him. He almost died for the work of Christ. And you might think, wow, like, that is an amazing story what he did. Like, going on this long journey, doing this thing, almost dying. It's like he's almost this martyr. And, and yes, listen, it is an amazing story, but it's also just like a very normal dude who became a Christian, saw a need. The church is trying to move this money across some land, and he's like, you know what? I could take a couple weeks off work and do this. I'll, I'll do it. It's just like really normal faithfulness, and so he just does it. And now his story is written into the Bible as part of the history of Jesus bringing his kingdom to bear on this world. He's written into the story, the history of redemption, just because of a simple act of faithfulness. When we're training new Salt Company staff, one of the things that we're doing is we're, we're taking people who are new in ministry and we're trying to help them answer, like, who are the kind of people you should spend most of your time with, right? We want to have open hands and we want to, like, spend time with everyone. We don't want to show favoritism, but we're also, like, the people who we're going to really pour our lives into, really grab and say, I want to disciple you and pour my life into you. We say, who are the kind of people that we should do that with? Who are the kind of people who are going to potentially make an impact on campus and among their peers? And what we tell young staff is we say, you need to look for fat people. Now, F-A-T, faithful, available, teachable, all right? I'm going to explain this. It's not just literally fat, fat, F-A-T, faithful, faithful, teachable. Okay. Faithful. What does this mean? It means they just show up. <laughs> like, that's it. Faithful. They show up. You have an event, they're there. You have a small group, they show up. You're having a prayer time, they're there. They're faithful. They're available. It means they have margin in their lives and schedules to pursue the things of God. They've actually made space in their lives, in their calendar, for a spiritual life to exist. They're available. And then the last is just they're teachable. They just, they want to learn. They have open hands with their lives, their plans, their ideas of how things should go. They're faithful, they're available, and they're teachable. And, you know, what's not on that list is like skilled powerful, charismatic, like not the right lineage, history, or parents. It's like, don't you really need these high-capacity leaders? And it's like, no, you don't. You don't. Because the kingdom of God moves forward through the ordinary faithfulness and simple intentionality of really normal people. Now, one of the things this passage has done for me this last week is it's just caused me to slow down a little bit. Like, it just caused me to slow down and just, like, notice the normal, everyday situations that I'm in. And it's kind of reminded me that the things that change the world are not lofty and out of reach, but they're actually the very things our lives are made out of. Some friends, some normal human experiences, some pain, some struggles with anxiety, plans going wrong, people getting sick, some people being in need, and some other people having the resources to help them. And in the middle of this, there's just this simple, ordinary faithfulness to God, to his mission in the world, and to one another. 
I was looking at this book, Everyday Faithfulness, and um, there's this person who kind of just summarized the, the whole book of just like, what does it look like to live a life of everyday faithfulness? And this is, this is what they say. God primarily calls us to an ordinary obedience. Small, daily actions that don't yield immediate results. <laughs> now sure, there may be thrilling opportunities along the way, but that's not the, what the Christian life is built on. Its foundation is the daily plodding of everyday perseverance. It's a long game comprising a thousand tiny thoughts, words, decisions, and moments. And though this perseverance is so much harder than any of us ever anticipated, it's more precious to God than many of us realize. It's like saying, man, like if you were trying to figure out, like, ah, I want to be part of the kingdom of God. I want to even, like, I want my life to matter. I want to change the world. And I think sometimes we get in this space, at least I do, of like, man, if I could do something else with my current day, <laughs> then I would really be making an impact. Or if I wasn't stuck doing this thing, then I could really impact the world. But I feel like this passage is helping us ask the question, what if you actually already have the story that you need to impact the world? Like, what if you actually already have the exact right set of circumstances today to actually live this life of simple faithfulness that will change the world? And I was thinking about this. It's so awesome because this is so many of your stories. Like, I think that this church, this room is filled with people who are actually living these lives. Simple faithfulness to Jesus in the small ordinary moments of life, and despite how normal and mundane your life might feel, the gospel's moving through you. It's changing the city. It's changing this place. I mean, isn't it crazy that there wasn't a church here three years ago? Like, this used to be a trampoline park. I mean, it, it still kind of is, okay, but like, there wasn't a church here three years ago. There wasn't a crowd here. There wasn't people who's having their lives transformed who are part of this room but there were just some normal people who decided to move to a new city. Normal problems, expensive house prices, trying to figure out logistically how to do it. Then some normal people came with them to this church, some people with the wrong backstories and a history that they felt like was like really far from God. They came to know Jesus. And some people just started having kids, trying to figure out how to be parents. And in the midst of this, simple faithfulness to God, to his mission, to one another, it doesn't seem like those kinds of things could change the world. But Jesus is alive. He's alive. And it isn't just an abstract God who calls us up to where he is. It's the God incarnate, God with us, Emmanuel, who's like, hey, I'm actually going to be with you in every moment of your day. The most mundane, most seemingly insignificant thing that you do all day, Jesus Christ is with you. And there's a way to simply be faithful to him in that moment. And a lifetime of doing those things will actually be like what he says earlier. He's like, you want to be a bright light in the world? Just like do something small. Like try to change the way you think of this circumstance. Don't complain, rejoice. You want to be a bright light in the world? It's simple faithfulness to the things of God and the everyday things of life. And if you do that, if you faithfully do that, then over time, these small decisions for Jesus will eventually lead to a life that you'll look back on it and say, whoa, Jesus actually did change the world through me, even though it didn't seem like he was in the moment. Let's pray.
Jesus, you are awesome. And God, I love that when Paul is writing these things, he is someone who has this immense spiritual power and has had these just really amazing experiences with you. And, but at the same time, he has these just moments of quietness, seemingly mundane things, like he's, he's locked in prison. He can't even go out and share the gospel in the way he wants, and yet it's actually in that place that you're still using him to change the world. And God, I feel like some of us in the room, maybe that's how we feel like our lives are going, where it's like we're, we want to run hard after you, but we're just like, we're sick. And we don't have the capacity or the energy we want, and we feel like maybe if we could be different or if our lives could be different, then we could really make an impact here. And Lord, I just want us to be encouraged that you didn't just come to change the world, but you came to use us to do it. And you want to empower us in the everyday things of life to be your hands and your feet, to be a bright light in this dark and twisted generation. And it's not these lofty moments of like worship or like these huge revival tent meetings. It's just like faithfully loving our children, faithfully trying to share the gospel with a neighbor, faithfully trying to be people who rejoice always. God, would you make us more of those people? And God, would you help us remember in the everyday things of life that you are with us? And even when our lives feel small, because you are with us in it. It's not small. In your name, amen.